Hey, Sober Girls. Every life choice you make has an impact, and some choices are just easier than others. An easy choice for me has been adding Exact Nature CBD into my daily routine. Exact Nature's products can help curb cravings while promoting the positive changes in mood, focus, and my favorite, sleep. These are all part of getting and staying sober. They're available in oils, soft gels, and gummies, and in varying strengths and formulas. What I love most about Exact Nature is I know the quality is top tier and safe because their products are made by people in recovery for people in recovery. Go to exactnature.com to get 20% off your order. Use code SOBERGIRL20 at checkout. Being positive is a choice. Exact Nature just makes it easier. Welcome to a Sober Girl's Guide podcast, a lifestyle podcast based on sobriety and recovery. I'm your host and sober girl, Jessica Jabot. Inspired by my own sobriety and wellness journey, I want to spread the wealth of knowledge. Tune in each week for uncensored conversations about mental health, self-development, wellness and spirituality, and how they influence each guest's unique recovery journey. My goal is to educate and inspire and to let you know you are not alone on your recovery journey. Thanks so much for tuning in to a Sober Girls Guide podcast. Let's go! Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 129 of a Sober Girls Guide podcast. On today's episode, I have the boss girl herself, Melissa Urban. Now, you may know her as the Whole30 co-founder. She is also a six-time count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, six-time New York Times bestselling author. She is a personal boundary advisor, which she gets into on this episode, and she is also a recovering drug addict. This is a dream come true to talk to Melissa. She is so inspirational and motivational, and I know you're going to love this episode. So let's get into it. A lot of things change in sobriety and recovery. Our values, our priorities, maybe even our careers. For a lot of us, we're looking for ways to pay it forward, to help our fellow women find the freedom from living a booze-free life. A Sober Girls Guide certification in business training is the only custom design program for women who are in recovery who want to turn their passion into a successful career and profitable business. Head to a sobergirlsguide.com to learn more and to sign up today. Melissa Urban, I am so, so excited to talk to you today. I am so fangirling. I think that people think that like I know all these like really cool fancy people. But in fact, I just reach out to the really cool fancy people on Instagram and Hopefully they respond and you did. So thank you. I'm super heavy in my DMs. I love meeting new people in the DMs and talking to people. And I like doing, you know, interviews and podcasts and conversations with people. So yeah, it's great to be here. Oh my gosh. I am so excited. And I selfishly, like I, (laughs) I pick my guests based on my own personal needs too. Um, The whole 30. Wow. Like, I don't even know where to start. Um, I think a lot, a lot of my community, um, really kind of brought the whole 30 to the forefront for, for me personally. Um, because 
of the alcohol component, mm. right? The, the, the no drinking for 30 days and what that looked like for them and how for a lot of women turned into a little bit of a bigger uh, task than yeah. you would think, right? Um, I definitely want to get into the whole 30 stuff because it's amazing. Uh, you're a six time New York Times bestseller. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also, I definitely want to talk about like on your Instagram profile, it says you're a personal boundary advisor. So mm. I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do a couple of things, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you got all the everything, everything going on. But, you know, I really wanted to also touch base on, and I was listening to your podcast interview with Lewis Howe mm-hmm. and um, talking about drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of go back there because that, that you explained it was somewhat of a catalyst for your journey that you, you know, started with the whole 30 and all that good stuff. Yeah, it so certainly if you, was. Yeah. If you could kind of like bring us back to like what that was like, like what, what kind of led you to, to drug addiction, like where, where it all started. Yeah. I mean, so first I've had 21 years in recovery now, so it's been wow. quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That's um, really exciting. It's something I'm really proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, it really goes back to, I think for, as it does for so many people, trauma, you yeah. know, I had a, a relatively um, easy upbringing. My parents were married. My mom stayed home with my sister and I, I was a good student. I was a, you know, I didn't get in trouble. I didn't really act out or sneak out, or I wasn't really involved with boys. I was kind of a book nerd, Mm -hmm. but at 16, I was sexually abused by a family member Mm -hmm. and didn't know how to handle it. I had no tools or vocabulary for handling it. And my family had always modeled kind of just like, if you don't talk about bad things, then they don't exist. That was kind of how my Catholic Portuguese family dealt with just about everything. Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't talk about it for a long time. I didn't tell my parents for a long time. And when I did tell my parents, they didn't handle it great. They had no experience with this either. And, you know, they did the best they could, but I felt like I didn't have a lot of support in that time. And that led me to look for something to, distract and numb and take myself outside of my own experience. And I tried drinking and that never worked for me. I tried restricting my food and that never stuck. Um, But it was when I first tried drugs, when I smoked my first joint that I was like, Oh, this is it. This is what I need to completely, you know, get outside of myself. And that started a five year saga of what would become, you know, a a serious drug addiction. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, for some people it's like, Oh, this, it feels like home. This feels comfortable when when they slip drugs, alcohol, shopping, sex, you know, any addiction really. Um, So what, what did that look like for five years? What, like, what did anyone say anything? Like, how did you know that, you know, you were, you were kind of young, right? I was pretty young. I started when I was about 18. It was my, you know, senior year of high school, freshman year of college. But I dove in really hard. I make a joke, but it's not a joke that I only dated drug dealers for the next like four years. So I had access to a lot of things and I was known as the girl who would try anything mm. um, And because I was just running so hard and so fast. And I was also highly functional. So, you know, I still had friends who didn't really know the extent of my usage. My family certainly didn't. I was in college for a large part of this. I ended up dropping out my junior year of college halfway through because I could no longer sustain studies, but for the first Mm. two years, I was distant, you know, I 
I saw my family once in a while and I could kind of control my use around them. It wasn't until I left college and moved down to Virginia to live with my dad and his wife that things really escalated. That's when I found heroin and started using. I got in with a group of friends who, you know, one would eventually die, one would go to prison. Um, And from there on, I kind of just bounced from household to household. When one family would suspect that something wasn't quite right, I would moved, you know, to another state, I was in therapy as a way to sort of deal with my stuff, but I was really just drug seeking and I was quite good at it. Um, And it wasn't until, you know, I'd say the last year of my addiction that the wheels really started falling off the bus. I was having panic attacks. I could no longer modulate my own usage. I hated myself for my usage. I felt like I had no worth or no value. I began cutting, like there were just so many things that started to happen where I realized that I was in serious trouble and didn't know how to get my way out of it. And it was just, you know, my living boyfriend at the time who obviously at that point noticed I had an issue that set a boundary with me and took a stand and said, like, I'm going to find you a bed and rehab tonight, or I'm going to leave because I can't watch you do this. And, you know, by the grace of God, I said, I would go. Wow. Yeah. Right then and there. Yeah, I remember world changed. I honestly do say it was like divine intervention. I was sitting in the living room. He gave me this ultimatum. I remember my back was to him. I had just been paid and I was like, okay, I could go buy a lot of heroin with the money that was in my bank account right now. And I literally felt my dead grandfather's presence in the room. Like you can, you can do more than this. You are more than this. And in that moment when I was filled with like, just that flash of like confidence and that reminder of who I was, I said, I'll go. And from that point on, there was just no, you know, there was no turning back. He wasn't going to let me turn back. And it felt like I didn't have a choice at that point. Wow. Yeah. I have never heard anyone describe it like that. Like I've never heard, you know, um, yeah, it definitely sounds like you were getting messages and like, this was your time. I was, I have a very tight relationship with God now, right? We are super close and we talk all the time, but then I didn't. Um, and I still feel like God found a way to sort of insert, you know, his voice into my life just when I needed it the most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why do you think when you were younger, you didn't have a connection to God or a higher power? Yeah. Well, you know, I was raised Catholic and this is just my own interpretation of Catholicism through my own lens and my own experience. But Through the Catholic religion, I was taught that I was not qualified to have my own relationship with God, that I needed an intermediary. And in the Catholic church, it is an old white man to dictate what that relationship looks like. And the only way I can receive the word and I can participate is like through this intermediary. And that never stuck really well with me. And when I watched my mom get divorced, uh, my parents divorced when I was in the thick of my addiction my dad chose to leave and you know my mom didn't really have much of a like part in it she wanted to work on the marriage and my dad at that point decided it wasn't you know he couldn't mm-hmm. when my mom left the church the church said to her we're really sorry but now that you're divorced you can no longer receive communion and my mom was like what? a good fate. oh yeah that's the that was the rule at that point for for the next wow. i think like 18 years my mom even though no one would have known did not go up and receive God's holiest sacrament because she had been divorced. And at that point I was like, well, this is kind of bullshit as far as I'm concerned. Like my mom's a good practicing Catholic. She goes, she tithes, she believes, she prays. And like for them not to recognize her and offer her the sacrament, that was the point where I just decided I was going to leave 
the church. And I didn't realize at that time that I could have a one-on-one relationship with God. No one explained that to me. And it wasn't until much later that I discovered that like, you can do it any way you want. And the way I talk to God is like super direct and one-on-one, you know, like we're best friends, but yeah, that was my kind of background with it and why I had this big block of time in my life where I didn't have a higher power or a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How, how did you, how did you realize that for yourself? Like, how did you kind of come back to it that you could, yeah, you know, do it on your own time? Well, when I was in rehab the first time, I did all of my AA and NA meetings yep. and, and they talk about a higher power. And that was the first time that I sort of thought about what that might look like. And I was really reluctant to even call it God at that point. So I kind of mm-hmm. thought of it as like the universe, Yeah. but I started becoming more intentional a few years later. I didn't go to AA or NA for too long. That wasn't actually a a helpful part of my personal recovery, although I recognize how helpful it is for so many. And I just started kind of spending more quiet time, opening myself up to the idea of God. And I remember a few instances where I received back such powerful, like messages, like feelings and and like sentiments. And no one could tell me that that wasn't God. You just could like, you couldn't, you had to be there. Yeah. And so the more I started finding ways to receive God's message, and I will refer to God as like he or she or the universe or mother nature interchangeably, like she doesn't care what I call her. The more I opened myself up to receiving it, the more I found God was like willing to chat with me. And then I would start talking to them back and, and we have, would have these exchanges. And, you know, in my life, God has a wicked sense of humor. Um, yeah. When he's really pushy and obnoxious is when I call him he. Um, he is often like not subtle in such an annoying way. But like this is uh-huh. how we have this relationship now. And it wasn't until I practiced and realized like, oh, no, no, you don't need anyone else for this. Like God is super pumped. Anytime you want to talk to him in any capacity, in any way whatsoever, God is just like, yeah, cool. This is, this works for me. Um, so yeah, I guess I just kind of discovered it on my own. I love that. Yeah. That is so cool. That is such a great realization. I love how you just explained that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. It's, it's so true. It's yeah. You don't need anyone to practice like the right way or the good way or whatever you can just find, find your own pathway with it. I think so. Um, Yeah. I wanted to ask you just a little bit touching on um, AA and the 12 step kind of program. Um, Why do you think it it didn't work for you or wasn't kind of sitting well with you? It's funny. Um, I don't know that I would have been able to explain it at the time, but now looking back, I have a much better understanding. Yeah. When I went into the 12 steps, of course, the basic premise is that like you have, you are powerless over Mm -hmm. this addiction and you have to remain in your recovery by showing up to the meetings and admitting that you are powerless. And Mm -hmm. I never liked that. I'm an Enneagram eight, a Gretchen Rubin upholder. I am like a go-getter. And I didn't like the idea that I was powerless. In fact, I was thinking like, the only person who can turn this around is me. And if I give up all my power and I lean wholeheartedly on this meeting, what happens if I can't go to a meeting? What happens if I travel and can't find a meeting? What happens if I go to a meeting and it's not like a healthy mind space for me? Because that happened a few times. Oh yeah. So, me too. you know, when I got out, so I was in rehab for a year, did all my meetings, got my one year chip, relapsed. 
Okay. Got myself back into rehab and did outpatient therapy for a few months. And that was when I was like, I'm going to do this my way. And I didn't go back to AA or NA. I went back to therapy and I started to unpack my trauma. And I started to tell myself that I was a healthy person with healthy habits, deserving of all of the good things that were about to come my way because like I was worthy and I reclaimed my power. And that was really how I was able to get into a solid place of recovery, you know, not by giving up my power, but re-empowering myself. I think we can all agree that anxiety is so 2023. Say peace out to anxiety and overwhelm with chill vibe gummies. Made with ashwagandha root, L-theanine, GABA, chamomile flower, and lemon balm, these gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO gummies are the perfect way to change your vibe naturally, and most importantly, safely. Whenever I tried medication for my anxiety, I was always hit with extreme side effects that made me feel paranoid or just completely numbed of all emotions, the good and the bad. Chill Vibe Gummies make you feel like you, just minus the anxiety. Go to vibegummies.com to get your gummies today. That's V-I-B-E gummies.com. Wow. Yes, I completely... I agree with you. I was like the same kind of scenario. Like I was in and out of AA for 10 years, mm-hmm. 10 yeah. years trying to like think like, why don't I feel good in here? Like, why, why am I not getting it? Why is everyone else successful? And like, I'm just not like associating myself with like, I don't know, like it just felt really limiting and, and kind of yeah. like powerless. Like I'm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the one who has the choices here. Yes. And if you've (laughs) ever heard Holly Whitaker talk about AA right now, she talks about how AA was founded from a very patriarchal Mm -hmm. perspective that if you're talking to white men, the most privileged people on the planet, which AA was founded by and for, Mm -hmm. then maybe it makes sense in that context to tell them you have to give up your power to get better. But as a woman coming into that establishment, that's like the antithesis of the kind of message that we need to receive. I also found that sitting in meetings, listening to people tell their stories was like super triggering for me. It made me either tell myself that my addiction wasn't that bad, Mm -hmm. which is like total bullshit, but that was a way for me to sort of like distance myself from my addiction. Or it made me want to stand up and prove that I was like the best drug addict that ever lived. And neither of those are like a very healthy scenario. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's like, well, you've been arrested eight times. Yeah. You've been arrested nine. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird how that can come out in me. And I, I still struggle sometimes with talking about it that I don't go to one of those like two polar opposites. It's hard to like accept my addiction for just what it was and not try to downplay it or make it more. Yeah. But those meetings, they just, they weren't a healthy space for me. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And it's, it's interesting because when we first started this conversation, I asked if you like being referred to as an addict, like, is that an okay label for you? And I like how you said, like, I just need to accept my addiction for what it is and what it was and where, yeah, that's, that's it. How, and you, oh, you also said, um, it keeps me accountable. Yeah. I, you, you know, know, touch on that you're the only person in any interview I've ever done around my addiction that's asked me how I like to describe my own recovery, which I think is incredibly insightful and helpful. So I very much appreciate that. I, of course, 
recognize that everyone has the right to describe and and name their own addiction and recovery however they choose. Mm. And I completely uphold that. I do still refer to myself as an addict. It serves my recovery to remind myself where I came from. And at one time I was addicted. I don't like to say that I'm like cured or that I'm no longer an addict. Like for me, that's just like one tiny step too far. I have been in recovery for 21 years. I feel super solid in it, but I still find that it is helpful. And especially when things get triggered around my trauma, it's helpful for me to have that framework to say, you know, I am an addict. I'm in, I am a recovering addict or I am a recovered addict. Like that's fine. But for me, that label still has an important part in my own recovery and journey. So I still claim it. I like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you went second stint in rehab, did things your way, took control of the reins, self-empowered yourself. What happened after that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the only other thing I want to point out in terms of that, like how I did it the second time was just the enormous amount of privilege that I had mm. that led to that successful recovery. Like I still, I still had a job that I could go back to working oh. for an insurance company. So my insurance company covered my you know, rehab and detox that my family was still really supportive. They didn't disown me. And I didn't have anyone in my family that was using or even drinking that would pressure me to come back. Like there were so many things in my life that were absolute privileges that set me up for success that second time. And a big part of that was a good health insurance plan and enough disposable income to join a gym. And that was where I found fitness. That was where I decided, well, I have all this time now that I've got to spend doing healthy pursuits and a healthy person with healthy habits would get up and go to the gym in the morning before they go to work. So that's what I started to do. Okay. And I made friends at the gym, a group of girls who didn't know my, uh, didn't know me when I was using and only knew me as like the new person at the gym who liked to run and was trying to figure it out. And so I you know, joined them on morning runs and I started eating better and paying attention to what I ate and, you know, sleeping more. And because if you wake up at four 30 or five in the morning, you've got to go to bed pretty early. And like, that was really the start of my health and fitness journey was, okay, you know, I'm not rehab anymore. Like now what should I do? Yeah. Like you kind of got to find your own structure and groove. Yeah. Very much so. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, and then so you said you, you met a whole bunch of new people who didn't know you like the old Melissa or pre. Yeah. 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 Um, How important was that to find new friends or new people who were interested in the same things you were? It was mission critical. I did. I do have friends. I still do. And I did have friends who would casually use, they would smoke pot, they would drink And after I get out of rehab the second time, I set some really clear boundaries with them around my own recovery. And those people were, they decided to stay in my life. They were happy to honor those boundaries and they were happy to, you know, not offer it to me, not do it around me. And we found other ways to connect instead of going out to shoot pool after work and drinking, we would like go camping or something. So we found other ways to stay connected, but I knew that I had to find other friends with the same healthy habits that I did in order to reinforce this vision I had of myself in my head. Yeah. And so going to the gym was just like a logical place. I ended up meeting five women from different backgrounds, different ages. Some of them were moms, some of them were married. I was single and we just met on a pretty regular basis. We would go for runs, you know, we would um, wake up early in the morning and run and then go for breakfast. They would, we'd still occasionally go out for drinks and I just wouldn't join them in drinks. And like, 
nine times out of 10, there were two or three of us that weren't drinking that night because we had a long run the next day or we just were tired and, and it was perfectly acceptable um, and not at all questioned. And that felt like a really wonderful safe space for me. Yeah. It's, it's a totally different vibe. Yeah. Completely different when you don't have to keep justifying your actions to people who are just, I don't know, like committed to not accepting you or not, not like kind of misunderstanding you, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I was very comfortable even from the beginning. So for the, for a long time in my recovery, I did not drink at all. And I was very comfortable in my recovery to be like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not drinking. No, I don't drink, you know? Um, And I never had a, like, even if people would peer pressure, I was really confident in that assessment, but it like wears you down. You know, and it's not that fun to hang out with people who are drunk all the time if you're not. And like, I, that wouldn't, the friendship wouldn't have stuck had they not been really health-minded and conscientious and like their own consumption was nowhere near problematic for me to be around or witness. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. A common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when you put the work in to make them great. Therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships, whether with your friends, work, your significant other, or most importantly, yourself. My biggest fear is that I was unlovable, that something was just not good enough or deserving of love. My therapist has helped me to see that my thoughts are not necessarily the truth. Therapy has helped me overcome these limiting beliefs that were keeping me in unhealthy patterns in my life. We are our own worst critic, and I love that my therapist reminds me of how far I have come. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com ASGG today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash ASGG. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, how you, you, ta- you, you said boundaries a couple times. Yeah. How, <laughs> how do you go about setting those? And what, like, do you have a formula? Like how you're a personal boundary advisor. Yeah. <laughs> Unofficially, I think. Unofficially. Yeah. yeah. Proclaimed. <laughs> um, I just shared a post on how you know you need a boundary because I think that's oh, a really okay. important place to start. And for me, it's like anytime I would be in a situation where I was like avoiding a certain person or discussion topic, like I'd find myself not wanting to spend time with them or in fear that they were going to bring something up. Like that's a really good sign that you need a boundary. Anytime you leave an engagement, a person, a situation, and you feel like you just got taken advantage of or walked over, that's where you need a boundary. So, you know, I think it can be really important to look at some of these very telling signs that say like, okay, my energy expenditure is like very one way in this situation, or I now don't want to spend time with this person, or I'm afraid every time we get together, they're going to bring up X, Y, Z, that a boundary, you know, a, a very clear and kind guideline designed to keep you healthy and safe and to improve your relationship, mm. that would be like a good time and a place to think about setting them. But 
boundaries are really hard for people, especially for people who are typically, you know, obligers or people pleasers who put other people's expectations ahead of their own. They tend to be harder for women because we have so many expectations heaped upon us by society and the patriarchy as to how we are going to like provide and serve for others. Mm -hmm. Um, And boundaries can be really uncomfortable because of the way that other people tend to respond when you revoke a privilege that they were never supposed to have in the first place. So yeah. For all of those reasons, it can be a really challenging practice, but that's why it's called a practice, you know? Right. But yeah. so worth it. Yes. I mean, it can make so the difference between saving a relationship and the relationship just going away. You know, if every yeah. time you and I get in a, a room and you want to talk about your weight, for example, oh, your weight loss or your diet, and that makes me so uncomfortable and it like triggers really unhealthy thoughts about my own body if I don't say anything and set that boundary around our engagement, we're just not going to hang out anymore. And it could be a really wonderful, loving friendship. Right. If I just say to you really clearly and concisely, like, Hey, when you bring up your body, it really triggers stuff with me and my own body image. When we get together, let's not talk about our bodies or our diets. Okay. And if you agree to that, now I show up and I'm not worried. I'm not anxious. I know that our conversation is going to be pleasant. And if you do forget and talk about your diet, I can just say, Hey, remember, we agreed not to talk about that, okay? And like, boom, we're right back in business. When you change your relationship with alcohol, you realize you have so many hours in the day. I love to dedicate my time to skincare, and Osea makes me and my skin feel and look like a queen. Osea's clean, vegan, and sustainable body care is a glowing choice for achieving your body care and self-care goals. Whenever I use the Andaria Algae Body Butter, people literally stop me on the street. My skin is flawless and glowing, and I love the thick and unbelievably rich texture that absorbs instantly. Skincare is a habit worth keeping all year round. Osea can help your skin have a healthy glow every day. Because let's be honest, skincare is self-care. With over 27 years of seaweed-infused products, Osea is safe on your skin and the planet. It is clean, vegan, and cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Never choose between your values and your best skin. Start the new year fresh with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code ASGG at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to oseamalibu.com and use code ASGG for 10% off. Love it. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it sounds so easy when you take, what do you say? Well, <laughs> it's it so much easier. <laughs> It sounds easy. It's not easy. Setting them is hard. Enforcing them or holding them can be harder. But what I'll also say is that people often build up this like terrible nightmare of a scenario. Like, oh, I don't want to go in and have this conversation. I'm going to ask you not to talk about your diet. You're going to be so mad and whatever. And like, you might be surprised that the other person goes, oh, I had no idea that bothered you. Yeah, cool. We don't have to talk about that. And you've been building up this whole scenario in your head for this long. And like, it turned out to be not a big deal at all. Yeah, it's always worse. Like when we're imagining, things. yeah, it oh, can it's be. gonna be horrible. But yeah, no, you never know. You never know how it's gonna go. That's true. Yeah. So I wanted to also touch on the whole thirty. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? It's like, it's just a phenomenon. Like it's 
everywhere now. Yeah. Whole it's 30, amazing. Thank you. Whole 30 was, I founded Whole 30 um, in 2009. Okay. So this was uh, nine years into my recovery. I was into health. I was into fitness. I was very into CrossFit at the time. I owned my own CrossFit gym and had a, you know, mildly successful little blog where I talked about my own fitness adventures and nutrition and random musings. And the whole 30 was really just a two person self-experiment back in 2009 with my original co-founder. We were just like sitting around after a really difficult Olympic lifting session. And he was like, what if we did this like kind of squeaky clean experiment, like based kind of on a paleo framework where we just eliminated all the junk from our diet really strict for like 30 days. I wonder what would happen to our you know, performance in the gym and recovery, which I was really into at the time. And I was eating thin mints on sitting on the floor of this gym at the time, because I had just exercised and I had earned them and I'm eating thin mints out of the sleeve. And I was like, yeah, it sounds good. I would totally do that. You know, when do you want to start? And he was like, let's start right now. And all of the things that made me a good addict make me really good at challenges like that. Cause I was like, yep, game on. So I handed my thin mints off to my friend Zach and I was like, we're doing it. And that was really the start of what was to become the whole 30 that, you know, today, just two people doing this 30 day experiment designed to, you know, see what would happen to things like performance and recovery and maybe energy. And Mm. I discovered was such a powerfully transformative experience in terms of my habits and my relationship with food. I got so much more out of those 30 days than I ever could have imagined. Like it was honestly magical And I was like, well, maybe I should share this experience with people on my blog. Like this was such a cool, you know, kind of 30 days for me. So I shared it and a few hundred people said that they would try it. And then they started getting the same kind of magical life transforming results. And that was the moment that I was like, oh, this could be like a real thing. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, I have to say the sugar is so hard. Why is sugar? It's an emotional thing for me personally. I know. I know. Well, first, maybe let me just tell people what the whole 30 is and because then we're going to talk, we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty because you already talked about alcohol and we're going to talk about sugar. So the whole 30 is a 30 day reset. It is not a weight loss diet. It's not a cleanse. It's not a detox. It is truly a reset for your health habits in relationship with food. So it's essentially a 30 day self-experiment where you eliminate foods that are really commonly problematic for your, um, your uh, relationship with food, your hormones and metabolism, your digestion and your immune system. And at the end of the 30 days, you reintroduce those foods very carefully and systematically like a scientific experiment to see how they work for you. So it's kind of the way that you determine the best foods that work in your individual environment. But the foods that you eliminate for 30 days that tend to be commonly problematic do include sugar Mm -hmm. and alcohol. And those are two of the most commonly celebrated food groups in our society. Have a bad day, eat some sugar, drink some alcohol, break up with your boyfriend, have some ice cream, drink some red wine. Tough day of, you know, momming with the kids, grab that bottle of wine during like mom time. Um, And so giving up those foods are like really challenging, not just from a physiological perspective because of some of the perhaps dependence that you may have on those from an energetic perspective or alcohol is like literally addicting, Mm -hmm. but they're also difficult from an emotional perspective because you've been leaning on these two food groups for such a long time to show yourself love and self-soothe and relieve anxiety and reward and punish yourself. 
in the absence of those, it can leave people like feeling naked. Like now what do now I just have to sit in my feelings. Like that feels terrible. Yeah. Um, and it can be really challenging. Uh, yes, I can agree with that. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, for me personally, sugar is comfort. Yeah. You know, it's happy. It's sad. It's literally like all the spectrums of emotions like that is the go-to. I always joke around that like, I am basically a Christmas elf. Like I, (laughs) like, I'm not joking you. Like I had like raisinets for breakfast. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. Like, I don't know what, like sugar is just so deep for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of it is physiological, right? We can become so used to running on sugar for energy that Mm -hmm. our body doesn't know how to run on any other substrate. And so when you are low on energy first thing in the morning or 2 PM, you know, your body just sends you, you know, massive amounts of cues to eat more sugar because that's the only energy it knows how to use. It also is tied into stress. So we don't, you know, we crave specifically because of the stress cycle and because when our body thinks that we are under stress, physiological stress, psychological stress, body experiences it all the same. And, you know, when you're being chased by a man eating tiger, your body just says like, we need quick energy to see us through this situation. And we get stuck in this really, you know, powerful stress cycle where we crave and overconsume, and then the guilt and the shame that we feel and the isolation that it brings leads us to, you know, feel more stress and crave more. And this is the part where right. I mentioned that the cycle with drugs and alcohol and the cycle with sugar is not that different. When you're thinking about this, like craving overconsumption, guilt, shame, isolation, hating yourself, more stress, more overconsumption of the very thing that you hate yourself for doing. Right. Like, am I talking about drugs or food? It's kind of the same. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, absolutely. Interchangeable. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. I definitely notice the energy thing. Yeah. Like I just need it. And it's weird because my whole family is like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like Things are modeled and passed so down behaviors. Yeah. Habits, of course. Yeah. And you know, very often in our efforts, we're like, I'm going to eat less sugar. And that's just a really difficult term for the brain to wrap itself around. Cause what does less mean? Right. When you're in the grocery store, you're looking at things and you're like, is this less, less than what? Well, if I combine it with the other things in my cart, is that still less? If I limit it to one cookie a day, is that okay? But then your brain tries to negotiate because it's always going to want the thing that's like the most rewarding and the most satisfactory and the most instant gratification and like less is hard. So that's why on the whole 30, one of the rules is no added sugar, just none. If you look at it and there's sugar in the ingredient list, you put it back. And it's a rough two weeks. It's a rough two weeks as you emotionally and psychologically and physiologically get used to running on the fuel sources that you're now providing your body. But right around the two week mark for a lot of people, it feels like flipping a switch and you're like, Oh, this is how good I can feel, Mm. you know? And it really is that like very strict structured elimination approach that tends to work the best in this situation. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's when, when you were just talking about like basically moderating sugar is the same with alcohol. Like, yeah, it's like, why compared to what? Yeah. You're asking a lot of people to moderate something to which they feel addicted. That's a tough sell. Yeah. And and it's also like, why would you want to moderate something that is shitty, like shitty to yourself, shitty to your mental health, like just all around. eh, Yeah. 
The thing that's so hard though, is that I could just give up all drugs, but everybody has to eat. So you can just give up all alcohol, but everybody has to eat. And if you, you can't, I mean, could you do no sugar whatsoever? I guess that means you're not eating green beans or spinach or apples or like, you know, there's a really kind of fine line between like maybe added sugar and natural sugar and, and everybody has to eat. So it's not anywhere near as easy, I think, to address some of these relationship with food issues because abstinence is not an option. Not that it's the best option all the time for drugs and alcohol either, but at least it is an option. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Wow. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question. Yeah. What piece of advice would you give to anyone listening to us who is maybe like, you know, has an, uh, an addiction or something that they want to overcome or some kind of, some kind of challenge in their life that they want to overcome, what kind of advice would you give them? I think the first thing I always say is talk about it. This stuff thrives in the dark. Brene Brown talks about shame, just thriving in the dark. Yeah. And when I was using, there were so many things. And even the first year into my recovery, there were so many things I just didn't want to talk about. I felt so ashamed, so embarrassed you know, people would congratulate me on my recovery. And I would be like, why are you congratulating me? Like, I just pulled myself back up to like a baseline of, you know, normal human functioning. Like I was, I had so much shame and I really believe that it wasn't until I started talking about it with a therapist, with trusted friends, with family, that I was really able to start shedding that, you know, sharing where you are and how you're feeling makes you feel less alone it makes you realize that you do have support and there are people there who care about you and love you and are willing to help you. And somehow just the act of getting it out in the open seems to alleviate like a decent percentage of the fear and burden that carrying it all by yourself seems to bring with it. So that's the first thing I kind of encourage people to do is like with anyone that you feel safe with, the very first thing you could do is just say like, I think I need help. Mm. Yes. Yeah. It really just putting it out there. And I, I mean, even just admitting it to yourself first and foremost. Yeah. It just you, like that weight. Yeah. Taking that off. It's, it's, it's surprising to me, but it's not when I really think about it, how not, how many DMS I get from people who tell me before they tell anyone else in their life. I think I'm an alcoholic. Um, I was raped and I haven't told anyone I, you know, I think I have a problem with, with drugs or I think I have a problem with pot. Um, they, I think there's a sense of maybe freedom that telling someone anonymously brings, but at the same time, you now do have that connection and accountability. It is out in the world. Um, and I really treat those encounters with like the utmost respect and I still follow up with people. You know, there's a, a person I follow up with. And every couple months, um, he'll send me a note and say like, Hey, just wanted to let you know, like five months sober. And I get like legitimately teary eyed when I think about how proud I am and how happy I am that these folks trusted me with that like gift, but it doesn't even, you know, sometimes telling your mom or your husband is so hard. Like if you feel like there's someone safe that you could talk to on the internet, like share that, you know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That anonymous con, uh, little concept is great. Yeah, it's I think it so, can be. It can be like really freeing. Totally. Yeah, you know, call lines, tip lines. There are so many, especially post-pandemic. There are so many ways that you can connect with recovery communities or therapy communities online now, and and any one of those would be a great resource if you just 
needed to say it out loud to someone. Yes, definitely. Well, and you, because you're just so open and vulnerable with your story and your experience, you just embody a safe space. I hope so. so. It's it's natural for people to gravitate to you and want to talk to you and want to share their, their experiences too. I hope so. You know, I decided a long time ago that I had a platform and I had a voice and that I would share my story with the hope. Well, first of all, for my own therapy, because every time I talk, like you said, you find your podcast guests for you. And I talk (laughs) to podcasts for me. So I'm always helping myself, but also just with the idea of like, I'll like, I'll go first, I'll go first. And if that helps you find your voice in any capacity, then I'm super happy to put myself out there like that. Oh, you're such a brave woman. Oh, thank you so much. It doesn't feel brave. It feels like my own therapy. Really, it does. This is like necessary in my own. I appreciate that. That's how you experience it. (laughs) I get it. I get it. We we all need to share and mirror and we're all getting something from each other. Right. That's why we're here. Yes. Absolutely. It's the best. (laughs) Oh, my God. Melissa, thank you so, so much for sharing and taking your time and just sharing your wisdom with us. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it was a great conversation. Thank you for treating my story with such respect. It was really nice to be able to share. I'm looking forward to sharing this when it comes out. What an incredible conversation with Melissa. So grateful. As always, thank you so much for listening. I couldn't do this without you. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, Leave comments and feedbacks. We love to hear what you have to say about the podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Sober Girls Guide. And don't forget about the blog. Head to A Sober Girls Guide for all your sober girl needs. I'm telling you, from sober girl swag to challenges to workbooks to group coaching to guide certification, we have you covered at any stage of your recovery journey, head to a sobergirlsguide.com today. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.